Well, thanks to John and the rest of the music team for leading us this morning. John, I'm thankful that you prayed um, the meaning of Gloria in excelsis Deo, that it means glory to God in the highest. I, I don't know if you ever lean over to your young kids or grandkids and say, y'all know what that means? And I leaned over to one of my children this morning and they said, it probably has something to do with eggshells. I heard eggshells in there. So um, that's helpful to know, right? And uh, able to explain that it, the fuller meaning of eggshells. Um, thanks to Tim so much for leading us last week as we as we walk through the first part of Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at the second half of it this morning um, in this series um, that we're dealing with the birth of Christ called Unexpected, the Confounding Comfort of Christmas. The first Sunday of Advent, we looked at Matthew 1, and we learned about Jesus' family history, his genealogy. And then uh, Tim brought us into the actual birth narrative with the shepherds and the angels' announcement. And this morning, what we're going to do is begin, we're going to look at two different sections, one this week and one next week, of some events that happen immediately after the birth of Christ. This is likely the, the first one, which is when Jesus goes into the temple with his parents to take part in the Jewish purification rituals and set, set, uh, consecration of their son, their firstborn son, to God, like was so common in Israel in those days, the firstborn son would be set apart to the Lord, similar to what Hannah did with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we see throughout the Old Testament. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the events in Matthew 2 surrounding Herod and what Herod was trying to do in trying to get rid of Jesus by killing all the children in Jerusalem who were under the age of two. And that likely happened uh, at least a year after the birth of Christ. Some scholars debate as far as the time frame goes, but we'll be looking at that event, Lord willing, next week. But this week we want to look at the unexpected salvation of Jesus here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verses 22 through verse 40. And I've got four points in our sermon this morning where we, we're, going to, we're going to focus in on what Jesus does, how Jesus saves, who Jesus saves, and then when Jesus saves. And we'll have two Subpoints under each one of those of the four main headings as we walk through this text this morning. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at what Jesus does. And I want to I point out two things that Jesus does in his coming into the world. One is that he brings outside conflict, and two, that he brings inside conflict. So we're going to look at each of those one at a time. The first thing that Jesus does is he brings outside conflict. Look at verse 33 and 34. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, what Simeon had just prophesied over the, the boy Jesus. In verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointing for, appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. I mean, here he, in verses 29 through 32, Simeon gives this wonderful blessing over this child, and then he, his parents are marveling. Mary and Joseph are stunned at what Simeon has just prophesied over the life of Jesus. And then Simeon says, by the way, he's going to bring some conflict. His life is going to divide the world, not just unite the world, but divide it. Of course, Jesus used these very words when he said in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Wait, I thought that's what Christmas was all about. Peace 
among men. And surely it is. The angels weren't lying in their announcement. But it didn't say peace to everyone. It said peace to those on whom God's favor rests. But for many, he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The call to allegiance to Jesus that Jesus will begin in his ministry by calling people to follow him inevitably produces conflict. People are polarized by his absolute claims and many will oppose him on those grounds. As Tim Keller said, the manger means that for you, if you live for Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends either. Increasingly, our culture sees Christians and Christianity as a threat to the social order. I don't know if you've been paying attention to that lately, but that seems to be ever the case. Traditional Christian beliefs are seen as dangerously intolerant, the one thing we must not tolerate, although we tolerate everything else, but that is one we must not tolerate. Some kind of restrictions and exclusions are likely in our future, no matter who's in the White House, because politics is always downstream from culture. The reason for this conflict, though, Jesus says in John chapter 3, resides in the heart of men. John 3, 19 and 20, Jesus said, People love darkness instead of light because it exposes them for what they are. Romans 1 tells us that though we know God and though we know we need him, we repress repress and suppress that knowledge. Tim Keller again says, All human beings have a motor of self-justification deep in their hearts. We need to believe we are competent to run our own lives and save ourselves. Anything that prevents this motor from functioning makes us very angry. Nothing is a bigger problem for this whole complex of repression and denial than Jesus himself. That's exactly why he brings outer conflict. Because everything about his life says to us, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, you belong to me. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one wants to hear that. So it's not surprising then that people get mad at Jesus. And if you identify with Jesus and you don't hide your connection with him, some people are going to get mad at you too. So that's the first thing. He brings outside conflict. But secondly, he brings inside conflict. Look at verse 35. Simeon says, not only will this child be appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, but to Mary specifically, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, we're going to get more in detail about what he means by that phrase in just a moment. But I want you to see that this child is not just going to affect those outside the family of Jesus, but they're going to affect the family of Jesus too that it's not just outside conflict that Jesus produces, but it's inside conflict that he produces as well. Like I said, I'm going to explain what this means specifically in our next point, but for right now, you know this as a Christian. You know that coming to Christ has brought you great inside conflict. (laughs) I want to point out two ways that he brings inside conflict. First, there's just the inside conflict of sanctification, right? That is of pressing on to grow into likeness to Christ. That's hard. That's conflict. 
because Jesus is constantly calling us away from sin and toward him in righteousness. J.C. Ryle said, a Christian is known both by their inner peace and their inner warfare. And he goes on to say, there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They make a profession of faith in Christ. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die, but you never see any fight about their religion of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. Now, not a fight out there. Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. We don't fight those outside. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. But within ourselves, there is much fight to be had regarding our growth in Christ-likeness. But there's also the inside conflict of suffering. We've prayed about so many of it. Pastor Thad led us this morning regarding so, much, so many trials and so much suffering in our congregation in these days. We have many, many painful struggles from following Christ. Sometimes it takes the form of deep physical and relational trials and family trials, sometimes bewildering confusion, sometimes great pain. But this is because God's children are called to spiritual war when they're called to Christ. And we fellowship in his sufferings. And we're reminded in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that we're not only called to believe in Christ, but we're called to suffer for his name. That's what we sign up for. Following Jesus is going to cost us something. So if you love Jesus and you have him in your life, a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. And it will likely take at least the forms of sanctification and suffering. So that's what Jesus does. He brings this outer conflict he brings this inner conflict. And that, of course, sets us up for the next three points, which are all about Jesus' salvation. How does he save us out of this? How does he save us out of this conflict that's external and internal? Well, that's what the rest of the sermon is about. Point number two, how Jesus saves. Again, two points here we're going to look at. We're going to look at that he saves through his sacrificial death, and he saves through his obedient life. And Tim set us up well in his sermon last week, talking about these two specific aspects. And in fact, our own reading set us up this morning. I don't know if you caught that. As we were reading through the Ligonier Statement, it talked about Christ's active and passive obedience. Tim explained that to us last week, that Christ's active obedience is his perfect life that he lived on earth in obedience to God's law to provide a righteousness for us. And his passive obedience is his giving himself up to death on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins to take away God's wrath and judgment against them. And those are the ways that Jesus saves. We'll dive into those in just a moment. But I want us to think for just a moment, how did people in the days of Jesus also think God might save? There were other forms of salvation out there. For instance, the Pharisees and the scribes, although they would say that they know God, Deep down, they believed that their religious duties were what saved them. They scurried around the temple precincts that day that Jesus came in and his parents came into the temple. They were no doubt performing all their rituals, but they were oblivious to the unique baby that was here being dedicated to the Lord. They took great pride in saying, all my life I've kept God's commandments, but they missed the Messiah in their midst because they were really more devoted 
to the law than the lawgiver. But also, you had the Sadducees, right? And it, for them, it was all about political influence and power that mattered. Life after death, they would scoff. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's just pie in the sky when you die. What matters is here and now. And there were no doubt a group of them within yards of the child and, and Anna and Simeon as they debated the latest edict from Rome and what was going on in the culture at that time and what Herod might be up to. And if they were alive today, and their spirit is very much alive and well in the culture and in the church, they'd be knee-deep knee in talk radio, knee-deep in Fox News. They'd have more knowledge about what's going on in the White House than what's going on in God's house. What's happening to the Supreme Court would affect them way more than what's happening in God's courts. And they'd spend more time trying to fix the things in this world than getting people ready for the next one. And then you had the temple merchants who were all about financial gain. And they were there too. And they were hawking their temple money and selling their officially approved sacrificial animals within earshot of this carpenter and his wife and their newborn savior son. And they lived well and left a nice inheritance to their children when they died, but they missed God's Savior on that day. Because they were focused on the wrong things. They were focused on religious duties or political influence or financial gain. And yet here we see God revealing exactly how he's going to save people. And it's not through those ways. It's not through the religious duties of the Pharisees. It's not through the political influence of the Sadducees. It's not through the financial gain of the temple merchants. It's through the sacrificial death and obedient life of the baby. Simeon told Mary in verse 35 that a sword would pierce through her soul. What's he talking about? Well, I think it's pretty clear. In John chapter 19, we get the answer. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying before his own mother, we read these words. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That's the sword that's going to pierce through Mary's soul. Having to watch her firstborn son crucified. But this is the way it had to be because it was going to be through his sacrificial death on the cross that he would save. The baby whom Simeon held, who cooed and kicked and delighted Mary and Joseph, would one day endure an unjust trial and be crucified on a bloody cross between two thieves for our salvation. It had to be that way. But also, secondly, it came through Christ's obedient life. Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now look at verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child to Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then verse 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Why all this stuff about obeying the law of the Lord? They're doing what the law of the Lord required. They're taking their son into the temple to 
fulfill what was written in the law of the Lord, that every male had to be, uh, shall be called holy to the Lord. And then they had done everything that was required in the law of the Lord. Well, to outside observers, Mary and Joseph were just another Jewish family showing up to the temple for the obvious purification ritual. It was very common. They were obeying Jewish law. Seven days after birth, Jesus was circumcised. And then 33 days after his circumcision, Mary and Joseph were back at the temple for a common ceremony and the presentation of their child to the Lord for his service. Yet Jesus wasn't merely doing this for his own sake. He was obeying the law of the Lord for our sake. He was submitting to the law so that he could perfectly fulfill the law as the spotless one who is identifying with the impure. He is going through a purification ritual because we aren't pure. He's going through a purification ritual to save the impure so that Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, and all of us might one day become pure. See, brothers and sisters, Christ didn't need to just die for us. He needed to live for us. If, if it were the case that he just needed to die, why didn't he come into the world as a 33-year-old man and die on the cross one minute later? Why did he live 33 years? Because he had to live as a perfect man. If Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, we would not get to heaven. Now I'm going to say that again, because I know some of you, what? Listen, if Christ only died on the cross, we would not merit heaven. Our guilt would have been removed but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve before they'd done anything good or bad or before they passed their probation successfully in the garden. To be established in righteousness forever and to have fellowship of, with God made secure, Adam and Eve had to obey God perfectly over a period of time. We're not told how long it was supposed to be, but God put them under a test of obedience. Then, after that period of time, God would have looked on their faithful obedience with pleasure and delight, and they would have lived with him in fellowship with that forever, and we would have all been born in sinless righteousness. But since that didn't happen, for this reason, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience could be counted to us. Paul says this as much in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, Christ not having a righteousness of his own based on the law, or sorry, we not having a righteousness of our own based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on God on the basis of faith. So, brothers and sisters, it's not just moral neutrality that Paul knows he needs from Christ. That is a clean slate, sins forgiven. No, we need a positive moral righteousness. And he knows that can't come from himself, but must come through faith in Christ. Jesus said this to John the Baptist, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 3. Now think about this. This would have been some of the first words that Jesus would have spoken. Now we know that he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when he went down to get baptized, the first significant act of his public ministry What's occupying his mind? The very thing that was occupying the minds of his parents when he was born. Obedience to the law of God. We read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, when John kind of steps back and says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. 
You should be baptizing me. And he says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I mean, that was what's occupying Jesus' mind. I came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had no need to live a perfect life for himself. He had shared love and fellowship with the Father from all eternity and was in his own character eternally worthy of the Father's good pleasure and delight. But rather, he had to fulfill all righteousness for us. That is, for the sake of the people whom he was representing as their head. Unless he'd done this for us, brothers and sisters, we would have no record of obedience by which we could merit God's favor and merit eternal life with him. Moreover, if Jesus had needed only sinlessness and not also a life of perfect obedience, he could have died for us, as I said, when he was a young child, or rather rather than when he was 33 years old. So by way of application, let me ask you, in what is your trust? Are you trusting this Christmas in your religious duties, or maybe in political influence or financial gain, or are you trusting exclusively in the life and death of Jesus Christ? By way of application, we ought to ask ourselves, whose lifelong record of obedience would I rather rely on for my standing with God, Christ or my own? Are we willing to rely on his record of obedience for our eternal destiny? It's the only one that will get us there. So may you be found this Christmas resting in Christ alone. Number three, who Jesus saves. We've seen what he does We've seen how he saves. Now let's look at who he saves. Two points under this one. First of all, he saves the needy. He saves the needy. Look at verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Then look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, what, what of this action in verse 24 that Mary and Joseph are doing? They're carrying with them two turtle doves as part of their sacrificial offering. Now, there's some deep irony here. I want you to see it. Though they carried in their arms the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, they were too poor to purchase a lamb and had to settle for the lesser turtle doves, which was the offering that was given for poor families. This reminds us of the kind of people among whom God chooses to dwell. Dan Darling says, The kingdom of Christ breaks in, not in the palaces of private estates of the powerful, but among the common, the meek, the kind of people who had to dig for enough shekels to afford turtle doves. We also see this in Anna. Anna represents a counterattack to our age of celebrity. In an age of celebrity, we assume that God is mostly at work among the famous and the gifted and that the church is built on the gifts of really attractive pastors and really cool ministries and really attractive things. 
the biggest social media followings and the largest churches, nothing wrong with any of that necessarily. But we learn here that the church mostly advances through the winding paths and ordinary obedience of outcasts and misfits and forgotten people. Think about Anna. First of all, she was a woman. While Jewish women enjoyed more respect in that day than women in certain other cultures, nevertheless, there was still a fair amount of discrimination against them. The rabbis did not approve of the same amount of education and instruction in Torah, Old Testament law, to be given to girls as to boys. They regarded women's minds as not adapted for such investigation. Women were restricted to an area of the temple called the women's court. They could not enter the inner court where the ceremonies were performed. According to Josephus, an early Christian writer, women and slaves could not give evidence in court. And yet the Lord is pleased to value and include the testimony of Anna about Jesus. And remember, it was women and women's testimony that validated the resurrection. Also, Anna was not only a woman, but Anna was a widow. In fact, she'd been widowed at an early age. She easily could have grown bitter toward God. She could have complained of her loneliness. Widows in that culture didn't have much opportunity to get an education or learn a business or a trade to provide for themselves. They were often the target of unscrupulous businessmen who wanted to take advantage of them. No doubt Anna had experienced a difficult life. I mean, the better part of 70 years as a widow. And yet, she did not turn her back on God. She took refuge under God's care, and her trials drove her to deeper devotion to God, not away from him. But then thirdly, Anna was elderly. In our pragmatic society, the elderly are often viewed as a useless burden on society. They can't take care of themselves, they can't make a living, but thankfully God does not view the elderly that way, and neither should we. The point is that no matter your station in life, if you're needy, you qualify for Christ's salvation. The poor Mary and Joseph who could only offer turtle doves, the old woman Anna who was a woman, who was a widow, who was elderly, no matter what your station in life, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, God's salvation is available to everyone if you're needy for it. Number two, he saves the waiting. He not only saves the needy, but he saves the waiting. Look, for verse, look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That word waiting is so crucial because that implies that this was a man who had read his Old Testament well, who despite 400 years of God not giving any revelation whatsoever since Malachi, still held on to the promise that there was going to come one who would sit on the throne of David and be Israel's Messiah. And here Simeon is in his old age waiting for him and knowing that he's coming. See, we often sometimes think, did anybody know that Jesus, I mean, we read over and over these stories, did anybody recognize Jesus? I mean, how can you miss this? There was not, there were many that missed, but there were some that didn't. And Simeon is one of them. Simeon was a faithful follower of God 
who, unlike those around him, still believed that God would work to save his people. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. I'm going to throw in a couple more good Ryle quotes. By the way, just a plug. If you don't have J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels, you don't even have to purchase them. They're all online for free. You can, you can read this, one of my favorite pastors. He lived basically the entirety of the 1800s. And it was an, it was an English Anglican and a Reformed lover of the Bible and preacher of the Gospel. And his expository thoughts on the Gospels are wonderful meditations. Basically what he does is he, he reads through the Gospels and he gives you like three paragraphs of thoughts and you can find them all online. It may be worth doing in the new year. Just read J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels and begin reading through those. You'll be, a, you'll be a godlier and a more biblically grounded Christian as a result of doing that exercise, I promise. Here's what J.C. Ryle says on this very passage. God has a believing people even in the worst of places and in the darkest times. Religion was at a very low ebb in Israel when Christ was born. The faith of Abraham was spoiled by the doctrines of Pharisees and Sadducees. The fine gold had become deplorably dim. Yet even then we find in the midst of Jerusalem a man just and devout, a man upon whom is the Holy Spirit. It's a cheering thought that God never leaves himself entirely without a witness. Small as his believing church may sometimes be, the gates of hell shall never completely prevail against it. And I thought of our brother and sister, Heath and Jessica, Dane. Small group of believers there. God has not left himself without a witness. The true church may be driven into the wilderness and be, scattered, be a scattered little flock, but it never dies. There was a lot in Sodom and Obadiah and Ahab's household, a Daniel in Babylon, a Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. In the last days of the Jewish church, when its iniquity was almost full, there were godly people like Simeon even in Jerusalem. True Christians in every age should remember this and take comfort. It is a truth which they are apt to forget and in consequence to give way to despondency. I all alone am left, said Elijah, and they seek my life to take it away. But what said the answer of God to him? Yet have I reserved 7,000 in Israel. Let us learn to be more hopeful. Let us believe that grace can live and flourish even in the most unfavorable circumstances. There are more Simeons in the world than we suppose. And you know what? He still saved those who are waiting. Not for his second, or sorry, not for his first coming, but for his second coming. The New Testament is filled with exhortations and commands for us to be waiting for Christ to return. Romans 8, 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, so you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, waiting is a key command in the New Testament, and it's something that none of us like to do. We don't like it in the doctor's office. We don't like it at the traffic light. We don't like it in the grocery line. But in the Bible, it's a big command. Wait, 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 wait. It's coming. He's coming. Ryle again says, let us learn a lesson from these good people 
If they, with so few helps and so many discouragements, live such a life of faith, how much more ought we with a finished Bible and a full gospel? Let us strive like them to walk by faith and look forward. The second advent of Christ is yet to come. The complete redemption of this earth from sin and Satan and the curse is yet to take place. Let us declare plainly by our lives and conduct that from this second advent we look and long. We may be sure that the highest style of Christianity even now is to wait for redemption and to love the Lord's appearing. (laughs) May the Lord help us to wait for redemption. Fourthly and finally, when Jesus saves. What happens when Jesus saves the needy and the waiting through his sacrificial death and obedient life? Well, two things. First of all, our purpose has changed. When we are saved, the first thing that happens is our purpose has changed. Look at verse 31. That you have prepared, Simeon says, this child in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So this is not meant to just stay here. Right? Simeon's saying, yes, this is a light for Israel, but this is more than just a light for Israel. We got a missionary announcement now. This is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This Savior is born for you and for all. Now, we see how exactly this plays out in verse 38. As Anna, as, it's, as, as Luke writes of Anna, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, when we're saved, brothers and sisters, we speak of Christ. We can't help it. Notice how Anna began sharing this good news immediately after she received it. I I challenge you to read through the Gospels and see how often, immediately, when people are saved, they begin talking about Jesus. You remember it in your own life, don't you? Remember being saved, newly saved, and talking more about Christ? Anna couldn't keep it to herself. She continued to speak of him to others. Listen, brothers and sisters, if our heart is full of thankfulness to God who sent his son to save us from our sins, people around us should know about it. Some believers justify not witnessing by saying, well, I don't talk about it, I just live the message. Listen, part of living the message is talking about it. (laughs) Nobody's going to get saved watching your life. They're just going to think you're a good person. Or maybe a troublemaker because you seem to say things about the Bible every now and then, but no one's going to get saved watching anybody's life. A 2002 LifeWay research study found that 80% of church-going Protestants believe they have the responsibility to share their faith, but only 39% have actually shared with someone how to become a Christian in the past six months. That's half of the professing church not speaking of Jesus in six months. Brothers and sisters, that is unacceptable. That is why, in part, our culture is where it is. Because Christians don't talk about the Lord Jesus Christ enough. Now, I don't want to guilt us here. Anna wasn't guilted. She met Jesus. She saw redemption. She had to talk. Now, why, don't, why is it that, that, that 50% of those people surveyed in 2012 weren't sharing their faith in the past six months. Let me just give you four possibilities. Number one, lack of content. 
Maybe many of them struggled to articulate the truths of the gospel in a simple, coherent, intelligible way. Brothers and sisters, can you share the essential message of the gospel in 60 seconds right now if you were asked to do it? You need to be able to do that. 60 seconds, the whole gospel. God, guilt, grace, gratitude, glory. God, who God is, guilt, our sin, grace, how God saves, gratitude, our life of response, glory, what awaits us. I have an article, 25 copies, right out there on the candy of that article. It's two pages, explains the gospel in a very simple, that, that, those five G's. God, guilt, grace, gratitude, glory. Take it when you get a Hershey kiss after the service. And if they're all gone, you can email me and I'll send it to you. But we need to be able to share the gospel, brothers and sisters, 60 seconds or less. Please take all 25 of those copies and read them and communicate that to your families and friends this Christmas. Open your mouth. Tell them what Jesus has done. Second is a lack of concern. Some of us know the gospel. Well, we could share it in 60 seconds, but we just don't care much about lost people. We would never say it, but our priorities in our lives reveal it. We make no time in our busy schedules to interact and engage with people who don't know Christ. We have long stopped praying for lost people in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We have no meaningful non-Christian friends who would actually call us their friend. Lost people can be a low priority. We need to ask ourselves, when was the last time that I had a meal with someone who didn't know Christ? And that needs to be pretty regular. Number three, lack of courage. We have concern. We've got the content. We just don't have the courage. What will others think of me? Some people are paralyzed by the thought of being disliked or marginalized or laughed at and openly mocked. I get that. I feel that. I know that. We're afraid we'll lose business or we'll get passed over for a promotion. What if they stopped inviting my kids to their birthday parties? What if talking about Christ makes seeing neighbors awkward? You know, I got to live next to these people. What if they start viewing me as Ned Flanders or a Westboro Baptist Church cult member? Lack of content, lack of concern, lack of courage. Maybe it's lack of compassion. We lack compassion for the lost. We've long forgotten what it's like to live without hope, lost and apart from Christ. We rarely consider that those who do not obey Christ, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.9, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. We just don't care that much. We might say we care, but we rarely cry out to God for the salvation of people. Paul's compassion in Romans 9.3 may be utterly foreign to us. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers. Brothers and sisters, here's the penetrating and obvious and heart-checking question. We all talk about the things we love. We all do. Have you ever been around a sports fanatic? What do they talk about? Did you see the game last night? Have you ever been around a young man or a young woman who's just fallen in love or just had a new baby? What do they talk about? They talk about what they love. Yes, we need to be tactful. Yes, we need to be sensitive. Yes, we need to wait on the Lord for the right opening. But most of us don't err on the side of being too bold. The order, by the way, is important. Worship first, then witness. Right? 
Anna's worshiping, and then she's witnessing. The reason Anna was telling everyone about the Lord Jesus was not because the pastor told her four points in his sermon on Sunday about why she's not sharing the gospel. She shared the gospel because she spent time with the Lord Jesus. All too often, the reason we don't bear witness is that we've lost some of that connection. So let's get back to our first love, and let's talk about him. Secondly, and finally, really finally this time, not one of those fake preacher in conclusions. And I saw this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where uh, some, past, or a, a, some person said, um, in con- the pastor said, in conclusion, and they posted at the bottom, this fact is disputed, <laughs> which it is. And then I responded, fact, it's concluding in 10 to 15 minutes. But I'm going to conclude in three to five. Secondly and finally, when Christ saves, our fears are relieved. Our fears are relieved. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Then verse 28. He took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. See, death is the great leveler of us all. In a hundred years, we're all gone. We're all gone. And it's the fear that grips many of our lives. Hebrews 2 talks about it, that we have the fear of death. And yet God had revealed by the Holy Spirit to Simeon that he would not die before he saw Christ. And he did. And what was his immediate response? I can die now. I can die now. And brothers and sisters, that's what happens when we're saved too. Not that we love death. Death is an enemy. Most of us, as, one, as John Newton, I think, said, I don't fear death, I fear dying. Right? It's not so much death we fear, it's dying that we fear. But even then, notice what Simeon says, I'm ready to die after he saw Jesus. Now I know that the subject of death does not make for the most heartwarming holiday entertainment. All right? No one wants to come on Christmas, before, right before Sunday before Christmas, and hear about dying. That's why we buy so much stuff, so we don't have to think about it. But this is what Christmas is all about. It's about getting us to a place where we're not afraid to die. We can be ready to die when we meet the one who conquered it. <laughs> Simeon could die. Not because he checked off all the right religious boxes or he performed all the outward rituals of the Jewish faith, but because he saw and believed in God's Savior. Once again, I'll leave the last word with our brother J.C. Ryle, who though dead, yet lives and still speaks. Been with the Lord a couple hundred years now, or at least a hundred years. Says, with this I'll close, what is it that can enable a mortal man to use such language as this? What can deliver us from that fear of death to which so many are in bondage? What can take the sting of death away? There is but one answer to such questions. Nothing but strong faith can do it. Faith laying firm hold on an unseen Savior. Faith resting on the promises of an unseen God. Faith and faith only can enable a man to look death in the faith and say, I depart in peace. It's not enough to be weary of pain and sickness and ready to submit to anything for the sake of a hopeful change. It's not enough to feel indifferent to the world when we have no more strength to mingle in its business or enjoy its pleasures. 
We must have something more than this if we desire to depart in real peace. We must have faith like old Simeon's, even that faith which is the gift of God. Without such faith, we may die quietly, and there may seem no bands in our death, Psalm 73, 4. But dying without such faith, we shall never find ourselves at home when we wake up in another world. And praise God that by looking on our Savior this morning, we can say, let your servant depart in peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've given us eyes to see the Savior this morning in your word. We pray that as we've observed him, as we've looked on him, that you would increase our faith. That for those who've yet to exercise that faith, you would give it to them. And you would grant them to believe on this Savior and this salvation that is freely offered this morning. That though this Jesus has come to bring conflict, that through his sacrificial death and through his obedient life to the needy and to the, well, the waiting, he says, come, I'll change your life. I'll change your purpose. I'll relieve all your fears. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that we can be reminded of the kind of Savior you are. We rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, and we long and wait for your second coming. We pray that it would come soon. Even so, we ask all this.